0: Open your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 John. I really do like abstract art. An artist's reason for doing abstract art isn't usually clear, and so it invites the viewer to really arrive at his or her own interpretation of that art, and that's fun. Unfortunately, the statement, God is love, is often treated like an abstract piece of art to be interpreted by each viewer, So the Apostle John, he he brings clarity where we're just left staring at tangible love, not abstract love, a love that that is both for us and works through us. Here in 1 John chapter 4, we, we find out what happens when God's love moves from the abstract to the tangible. And so before we read, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to see your tangible love for us. And that as we explore 1 John chapter 4, that you would help us, Lord, uh, to receive all that you have originally intended for us to receive through this text. We want to be moved by it, shaped by it. We want to see your love for us. We want that love to shape us. And so, Lord, would you have your way by your Spirit in us and through us as a community? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, First John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Two things I pray we see here in this text. One, how to know and overcome deceivers. And two, how to know and make known The love of God. How to know and overcome deceivers, false prophets, fakers, pretenders. The Apostle John begins this way beloved. It's a term of endearment. And essentially, he's saying this listen, don't believe everything you hear. Carefully weigh and examine what people are telling you. He says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. And what does he mean by test? Prove, try, examine, discern, scrutinize, approve after trial and examination. There's a responsibility that the Apostle John is putting on the churches to whom he's writing. It's up to them. Now test. Test the spirits. Well, spirits, behind every mouthpiece, behind every preacher or prophet, there is a spirit, a driving force and an influence. John goes on to describe it this way, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error or falsehood. Prophet, a man or a woman, speaking for a power beyond themselves, speaking what they believe God wants to say through them. And in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it was always necessary to test their claims, always, and still is. And so the Apostle John says that they, the church, needs to test Every spirit. Don't don't be lazy now. Don't get lazy. Don't, Don't let your guard down. Test everyone. The test is a theological one. What are they saying about Jesus? What are they saying about Jesus? Specifically, whether Jesus has come in the flesh. Now in John's day, some had gone out from them. They had denied this truth that Jesus actually had come in the flesh. They claimed, those who had gone out from them, they claimed that the flesh was evil and that Jesus only seemed to appear in the flesh. But Jesus is coming in the flesh. It's not an optional add-on. It's not an optional add-on. How many of you have an iPhone? If you have an iPhone, you know that it... Uh, There's been uh, the latest iOS update has involved some really cool widgets. And everyone's been playing with those widgets on their phone. And a widget basically is like an app that helps you streamline things with ease, and it's really cool. A widget is an optional add on, it's not essential. The fact that Jesus is the Son of God, fully man, fully divine that he actually and truly took on the stuff we're made of, is not an optional add-on. It's central to our faith. And the Apostle John is making clear that if you hear a teacher or a so-called prophet claiming to speak for God, and they deny or diminish the truth of Jesus, then they are false. Steer clear. This is clear in our day through various cults that come knocking on our door. We have a short conversation with them and we can arrive at the clear conclusion that they view jesus differently than us they either deny or diminish his authority or his personhood the reality of his humanity or usually his divinity this is the same with other religions false religions around us that that embrace jesus but in a different way maybe they recognize him as prophet only Stripping him, as, again, of his divinity. That's a bit easier for us to see. But what happens when the so-called prophet is using Christian lingo and or comes from a Christian background or maybe he wrote a Christian book or he shares a, st- a stage with people you respect? Maybe it's a so-called Christian mystic or an author or a teacher or a self-appointed prophet. Maybe it's a podcast you're listening to, or the latest book, or a conference that you've attended. Listen, there are so many voices coming at us with a word for us, a word that might seem right in the moment, it might feel good to us, it it might feel like it's helpful, and even it might feel true, it might have truth laced throughout it. It might sound good. It might be real positive and captivating and inspiring and edifying and persuasive and give us goosebumps and be eloquent. And the person delivering the message might look really handsome. It doesn't matter. It might have thousands gathering in and applauding. It doesn't matter. What matters. Is what they're saying about Jesus, is Jesus central? Or is their message really causing you to get off course and remove yourself from the centrality of Jesus and focus on something else? Is Jesus exalted or is he diminished? Is Jesus distorted or is he denied? It's not about your experience when you encounter other teachers. It's not about how good you feel. It's about their content, what they're saying. And John is saying we have to test the spirits. He said it to the people he was caring for back then. It was true for them. It's true for us today. Test everything you hear, everything, including what you hear from me. Test it. Why would it matter if Jesus was not fully human? Why would it matter if, if Jesus was not fully divine. How would it affect what he accomplished on the cross? Look look with me in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, beginning in verse 14, John writes, And the Word became flesh. But let's pause there for a moment, because the Word he's speaking of, he he actually brought out in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word's divine. Verse 14 now again. And the word became flesh and dwelt or literally tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory. The apostle John is saying, I was an eyewitness to his glory. Glory of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. And so if Jesus is is not fully human, if he's not fully divine, what are we doing? We're calling God a liar. We're calling the apostle John a liar. The testimony about Jesus we're saying isn't true. The very foundation of this message of redemption is being compromised. And listen, it's an attempt ultimately to silence God's love. And You end up with a generic Jesus, a Jesus of your own making, a generic God, a God of your own making. I'm interested in the Jesus of the Bible. And that's what we want to bring others to, not a Jesus of my own imagination. And so the the person who moves away from Jesus, who denies the humanity or the divinity of Jesus, in any way, John is saying this, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, That spirit was alive in his day. It's alive today. The spirit of the Antichrist is the spirit of uh, the anti-Messiah, the anti-anointed one. This is against Christ. It's an against Christ movement to diminish and deny Jesus, his authority and his personhood. But then he mentions verse four back in 1 John chapter four. Verse four, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you Is greater than he who is in the world. In other words, he's saying, listen, don't freak out. You've heard of the spirit of the Antichrist, and that's scary. That sounds scary. Don't freak out. Don't worry. You are from God and you've overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, if you've been in church for any length of time, you, you might have heard this passage quoted or celebrated. I want you to hear it again as if for the first time. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In other words, what John is saying is the spirit of the living God who dwells within you and and whom you abide and who abides in you, this community, this this communal relationship, this this real vibrant living and breathing dwelling that you have with the spirit of God who is in you is greater than the spirit of the Antichrist. And so he commends them. In other words, he's saying you didn't give in, you didn't buy into their lies And so you might wonder, well, why does John then warn them? And here's why. Because though it's a decisive victory, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. It's it's not going to change. It's true. It's an ongoing fight. Decisive victory, ongoing fight. We've got to remember. What happens when we remember that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world? We learned last Sunday that he's greater than our condemning heart. We all can just take a deep breath of relief about that. Wow, he's greater than my condemning heart. But now we're learning he's greater than the evil one. He's greater than the liar. He's greater than the spirit of the world. So so here, the spirit of the world isn't overcome by by skilled philosophical debate. He's not saying, "You've, you've accomplished this victory through Philosophical debate, coming across smarter than those who are opposing you or opposing the faith. That's not at all what he's saying. It's by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, enabling you to hold fast to the truth of Jesus. Do you remember how it felt when you were a child to come home? It was late at night and the house is dark and your parents are like, hey, go get ready for bed. And they expect you to enter the house for the first, you know, uh, the first one to ent- enter the house and it's dark. And you're like, no way am I going in that house alone. And you're scared. But if mom and dad go before you or they're with you or you know they're behind you, you can walk into that dark like you, you own the place. Because they're with you. I pray that's how we move forward, knowing for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world spirit of god dwells within you now we're talking abiding presence don't forget it don't forget it and then john goes on in verses five and six to basically say hey who do these prophets who do these teachers these false prophets these these pretenders and fakers who do they listen to are they listening to the apostolic preaching of jesus that we've delivered are they listening to us and who listens to them This world set in opposition to God is, well, that's who's listening to them. That's their audience. And and I know where John's getting this. John's leaning on the words of Jesus like he he does throughout this letter, where Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So John's saying, Does their teaching or does their so called prophecy line up with what the, the apostles have been saying? What the Apostles have been proclaiming about Jesus. Now, what's an apostle? An apostle simply means sent one. The apostles, capital A apostles, were the ones who walked with Jesus, the 12 disciples minus Judas. Judas was replaced after his betrayal of Jesus. And we had the 12 apostles. They were the witnesses to his life and his death and his resurrection, and they had unique authority sent out to begin what we're now a part of today. And we're reading the writing of an apostle. But he's leaning on a greater authority than his own. So the apostolic preaching about Jesus is really an authority that's rooted in Jesus himself. And he's saying, it's what you're hearing Does it match up with what I've been saying about Jesus and what Jesus says about himself? Now listen, we need to always take what we hear, whether it's a podcast, a book, a conference, someone who really sounds like he or she knows what they're talking about and they really know how to speak, uh, does it line up with what God's word says? We are going to hear things all the time that are going to come at us and try to bump us off course and push the centrality of Jesus out from the center. So, number one, how to know and overcome deceivers. That's what John was interested in. Number two, how to know and make known the love of God. In verse seven, he says, Beloved, term of endearment, let us love one another. There it is again. The central theme of John's letter, right there. It keeps coming back to it. That's why we titled this series, Love One Another. And why are we called to this? Why are we called to loving one another? Why should this be what we're all about on any given day? Because love is from God. He's the source. And because God is love. And like a child reflects the characteristics of his or her parents, we, we are to reflect God's love. Because John says we are born of God. Now look what he says in verse 7. Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. If you love, then you have been born of God. And you should then reflect the characteristics of your parent. Now look with me in John chapter 1. Again, the gospel of John. And in verse 12 and 13, John writes, But to all who did receive him, Jesus, to to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right. He gave the right to become children of God. We, We receive this right from Jesus our King from Jesus the Messiah, the Anointed One, we receive the right to be children of God. Verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Children of God. What a privilege. So if you don't walk in love, then you don't know God, and you're not born of God. No matter how confident your claim that you know God, no matter how much knowledge you have, no matter uh, how much You know the scriptures. No matter how long you've been a part of church, it doesn't matter. If you're not walking in self-giving, sacrificial love, the type of love that John's been laying out here, you're not born of God. In verse 8, he says God is love. It's his nature to love. It's something true of God. Some would speculate, some would want to promote that you can't know anything true about God. The God of the Bible is a God of love. The true God of the universe, John says, is love. Love is not God. God is love. God is love. It's an attribute of God. And Jab Hacker, he says, his love finds expression in everything he says and does. I like that. His love, God's love finds expression in everything he says and does. A.W. Tozer writes in his book on the attributes of God, the very first sentence, it's a wonderful resource, uh, the very first sentence of this book, it says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why do you think that is? What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because it will shape you. It will shape you. Who is God? Why does that even matter? It shapes us. John's already said God is light. And he'll go on to say in a few verses that God is Spirit but here he says something that we've seen on calendars or coffee mugs or t-shirts or bumper stickers. God is love. And it's held up. This phrase, God is love, is held up to justify all kinds of immoral behavior. It's held up to justify all kinds of action. It's used to defend all kinds of causes that have nothing to do with God. It's become a pass to do and live however we want to live. It has. I remember a conversation I've had, I mean, I've had many about like this, but I had one in particular where I was talking to a guy about Jesus and, and, and God's love, and, and he's like, man, God is love. And so basically what he was saying, God's love, like, get off my back. I can live however I want to live. I know what you're saying. I hear you, but God is love. So what this guy was banking on was his interpretation of what that means he, as the viewer, remember approaching this phrase, God is love, as if it's a piece of abstract R, and I can determine what that means, and I can justify anything I do because God is love. God is love. He has a consuming passion for the well being of others. His love isn't the result of anything we've done on our part, He took the initiative. And it does not mean we can live however we want. No. And John goes on to describe why that's the case. Look, look at verse 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made known or manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as, to be the propitiation for our sins. So God is love. Now we're seeing in verses 9 through 10 that God sent love for us. And so God's love, we know, is most revealed, fully revealed in his sending, the sending of his son. God's love has been made known or manifested, shown, put on bold display through Jesus What's the purpose behind this sending? Our blessing. Life. Life that we might live. Eternal life. Live here and now in this life for the glory of God and know that we're secure in him. It's for our blessing. And he receives the glory for that. But How personal are you making uh, the love of God? How personal are you seeing The love of God, it's it's personal. It's for your blessing that we might live. He loved us, John says, and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. Now, we're probably not using that word a lot in day-to-day conversation, propitiation. Um, John mentions this word before and he can't get away from it. Why, Why is that? Because the word describes what was accomplished on the cross for you and I. Propitiation. Some translations say atoning sacrifice propitiation for our sins it means this jesus fully absorbed the just and divine wrath punishment that you and i deserve jesus who stood in our place and became sin for us took upon himself the wrath that our sin deserves so that we might find forgiveness and reconciliation so that we might find wholeness and peace so that we might find life. That's what this means. And John can't get away from it. God's love is a decisive move on his part to intervene, to get in the way. It, this is profound, right? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's hard to grasp. It is. We will forever be standing in awe in celebrating the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. The work of propitiation. It will be something we will forever be standing in awe of. But is it abstract? No. God has shown us love. He sent love for us. God shows now, yes, love through Jesus, but look, verses 11 and 12 go on to tell us that God shows love through us. Verse eleven, beloved, if God so loved us, if God so loved, so he's saying that this is a so love, this is so much love, and, and then it's an echo of John three sixteen, which I know we've probably all heard so many times, but if God so loved the world, it's a so much love, a, a self giving love, sacrificial love, a love that has pursued us and got in the way of of the course we were headed on and and, and it's so much love. If God so loved us, God so loved us, he gave his only son. And whoever believes will have life. Life. Forgiveness of sins. Made new. Born again. And so John's echoing that. If God so loved us, so is emphatic, then what? Then we need to love one another. We should love one another. We love one another. We also ought to love one another. It just makes sense. It's the logical conclusion to this so love, this so much love of God. The logical conclusion is that we love one another. If you've got immeasurable and undeserved love coming at you, you don't respond with indifference and selfishness. If you're the recipient of immeasurable love, you don't respond with, yeah, okay, you really see it if you've really experienced it his love creates and produces in you a love for others it will and so in verse 12 uh, he reminds us God is made known or seen through Jesus who is the image of the invisible God we see this verse 12 but he says no one has ever seen God if we love one another God abides in us and his love is perfected in us now what's he it's, it's complete. It reaches its aim in us. God's love reaches its aim in us. Stay with me for a moment. Let me get this straight. God is seen and made known now through us, through our love for one another. The love of God is put on bold display through our love for one another. This is God's missionary strategy. This is our strongest apologetic. This is our best defense of the faith. What is? Our love for one another. This has always been God's plan. God sent his love for us and now decides to show love through us. John says it this way. His love is perfected in us. His love is made complete. It reaches its aim in us. The invisible God is seen in Jesus. The invisible God is seen through our love for one another, which reflects Jesus to the watching world. This is what happens when God's love moves from the abstract to the tangible. In church, it doesn't get more tangible than Jesus entering space and time and taking on the stuff we're made of. It doesn't get more tangible than Jesus standing in our place, receiving what we deserve and being torn open for you and me. It doesn't get more tangible than embracing Jesus by faith and reflecting his love to a watching world. And it doesn't get more tangible than people experiencing the love of God, maybe for the first time, through our love for one another. Are you kidding me? We get to be a part of God's missionary work of reaching those who are far from Him through our love for one another. What's our strategy to reach the city of St. Pete, the city that we love? What's our strategy to reach family members who are just far from God and have never seen Jesus or experienced Jesus before or understood Him or read the Scriptures? What's our strategy? We begin by loving one another with a self-giving, sacrificial love that we've been shown through God, through by. Sending his son to die in our place. And now we are laying down our lives one for another. And there's something so outrageous about that love. So beautiful about that love. That it invites others in. And I've seen it in you. I have. I mean, I've seen it. I'm so thankful for it. But do you know, it's not easy. It doesn't feel good all the time to live a sacrificial, self-giving life. It requires something of us. But what if we ask God to use us more and more in that way? We could put on a really big event, maybe not now, COVID. We could could have like concerts and those are fun. I love concerts. Uh, We could do all kinds of like really cool stuff. the way we are going to reach this city is through our love for one another. As we love others, and Jesus is seen in our lives, we bring people in, and then we're able to unpack and explain to them why we're loving this way. That we've been humbled by grace. We've been shown a love that is almost incomprehensible, immeasurable. So how can we not walk in love? we invite them into that. Let's pray that that would happen right now. Father, we pray that you would use us as a church to walk in love. That our love for one another would help others see your radical love for them in Jesus. That our love for one another would help others see your radical love for others in Jesus. Lord, would you do that? Would you continue to use us in that way as a church? In Christ's name we pray, amen.